Assalamu alaikum. May the peace that only God can give be upon you. You are listening to Radio Islam, and I am your host, Tariq El Amin. You've tuned in to Radio Islam, a live call in talk radio program, and we air every day from 6 to 7 p.m. Central right here at WCEG 1450 AM and we reach the world by streaming live at www.wceg1450.com Remember you can also check out radioislam.com where you can see behind the scenes photos, articles, guest bios and a lot more. Uh, if you haven't already done so folks make sure that you are following us or liking us whether at Instagram, Twitter or Facebook all at the same username at USA. That is at Radio Islam USA. And if you would like to pose a question, if you have a comment you'd like to make, anything you want to add to to, to tonight's discussion, you can do so by calling 312-750-1178. That's 312-750-1178. As always, remember, the last thing. Oh, our music is leaving us. I'm always so, so sad to see our music leave. Um, remember that you can always go back and revisit the episodes uh, that you that you that you like that you need to go back. You heard something that you maybe you didn't quite catch, but you want to listen to it again. You can find tonight's episode in podcast form tomorrow, uh, along with the rest of our episodes. So wherever you find your podcast, look for Radio Slam there. So I'm not going to spend a lot of time uh, talking, but I am going to share one quick thing. Uh, Siri does not is not all powerful. Siri cannot do everything. Uh, I am a longtime Android user, and I've just switched to the iPhone. And right before we came on air, I asked for Siri to mute my notifications, and she said, "I'm sorry, I can't do that." So, um, thanks, Siri. Uh, thanks a lot. But anyway, uh, best phone I've ever had, other than that. <laughs> so. Um, Radio Salaam family, uh, tonight we have joining us in studio Katie Merriman, uh, and she is a Ph.D. candidate in religious studies at the University of North Carolina at Chapel Hill with foci, that is the plural of focus, um, in contemporary Islam, race and religion, and the anthropology of religion. Her dissertation centers on the charitable giving in American Muslim communities at the intersection of race, class, and moral subjectivities. She's been involved in rights-based work in the Arab and Muslim communities in the United States and Jordan, and also lectures publicly on religious literacy and anti-racism practices. In addition, Merriman is the founder and guide for Muslim History Tour in New York City, which explores 400 years of Islamic history captured in often overlooked sites, architecture, and events of the past. Thank you so much for joining us. Great. Thank you so much for having me. Yes. Um, you know, and, and I should tell, I should tell uh, just full disclosure, not that, not that there's an exchange of money uh, taking place here, <laughs> but uh, I was fortunate enough to meet, meet Katie in the, um, in the way of uh, her uh, data collection um, as a part of, you know, one of the other hats that I wear um, with uh, Bridging the Gap uh, as part of the community service uh, efforts. So, um, but in the conversation, found out about, well, in, in addition to some other things, but I found out about the, the, the tour. Mm-hmm. I was like, wow, that is, that is amazing. Thanks. So, uh, first, just starting out, what could, could you explain to the uh, listeners 
what that tour entails and, and how it how it started. Sure. Um, so this is a tour that started um, through a really incredible um, education program for college-age students um, in the Nizari Ismaili community, also known as Aga Khani community. They spent a lot of time uh, educating their young folk about the history of Muslim societies and history, and it's based uh, oftentimes in Long Island, and they wanted to bring the students to New York City for something other than, you know, selfies in Times Square. Um, so a friend of mine, who was a director at the time, uh, she wanted to take my quirky trips that I made her go to in particular New York City sites and see if I could make it into an educational program. Um, so it started off that way, uh, worked very well, um, really engaged the students in spaces I don't think they would have visited um, in New York City. And then afterwards, it became something that every six months or so, I would take a friend or a friend of a friend and Finally, I got I kind of got tired of these group emails. So I was like, you know what? I'll just put it on Facebook. It's a lot easier. I put it on Facebook. I left on a beach vacation, and I came back two days later, and there were 300 people signed up. And I was like, whoa. Wow. Um, there's some interest here. Um, and I don't want to say just because nobody knew who was putting the tour together. So what that meant was people felt there was a lack. There was a lack of discussions of history and also just a curiosity to kind of know your city um, in a new way that isn't just presented um, through, you know, Broadway and, you know, the Empire State Building. Um, and so the tour itself uh, brings you around uh, these sites in Harlem um, that cover over 400 years of history. So New York City history, I like to say, is Muslim history. Um, and the two things that I say at the beginning of the tour is uh, Muslim history in the United States is international. There's no separation here. Um, and second of all, it's always multiracial. It's always inter these histories are interjecting into one another. And so, of course, we talk about Malcolm X. Of course, we talk about the history of Nation of Islam in the community. But we're also talking about uh, Bengali hot dog sellers, you know, that started new restaurants by selling hot dogs. You know, before there were halal carts and the halal guys, I know they got two guys in Chicago. Right. <laughs> yeah. You know, there were Bengali uh, men who were selling hot dogs uh, to try to raise money uh, to start their own businesses in the city. Um, there was also Ahmadi uh, missionaries who were coming over from Pakistan by way of England um, trying to come in. Um, there are new African immigrants. There are all of these histories kind of interjecting into one another, and I think that excites people um, to, to know about that and also to talk about these histories of immigration, of labor, um, of questions of racial prejudice and jobs. These histories are part of the tour. I think a lot of times people think religion and they think, you know, we're just going to go to a prayer space. Right. But religion comes to life in all aspects of, of people's worlds. And so I do that on the tour um, through going to these sites. I also play a lot of audio um, so people can hear, for example, um, prayerful poetry from some Sufi community or uh, Muhammad Ali talking in New York City. I have an auto recording of that. And of course, I rely a lot on photographs because either to let you know about these historical figures or to let you see things that are lost. So um, one mosque that I talk about has been uh, removed because of gentrification. So, you know, all you see is kind of literally an empty hole in the ground. So I, I bring that in. Um, and other famous places that might be in the memories and the oral histories of the community. So I 
talk about this particular bookstore that was owned by a man named Louis Michaud. Mm-hmm. So it's kind of this big kind of center of knowledge um, around the same time or before the Schomburg Library was opened. And uh, Michaud is kind of this figure that everybody who's from Harlem is like, oh, yeah. But for people who are bringing the tour in, you know, they haven't seen that. They haven't experienced that. That's lost for them. And so this, these pictures kind of bring people back. So what is the, well, just to uh, give a a quick point for the Radio Slam uh, family, uh, I'm going to, we're going to have a link to the video um, because this work was featured on on NBC. NBC. And uh, you made the uh, mention of the space, stopping at an empty, empty space to say that there was something here, that this, at this space, there was something here that. Uh, that meant something to the community. There were lives that were part of this space that are no longer here. Yeah. So uh, I, I just feel it's important to mention that, that we're going to make sure that we put that uh, link up so you can take a look for yourself just to see the, uh, the reactions of folks. And I want to ask, uh, it, it makes sense mm-hmm. that people who are not from New York yeah. would certainly find, find uh, they, they, their curiosity would be piqued, right? Yeah, sure. But what about the, the native New Yorkers uh, what give us kind of an idea of the, the comparison or contrast between because uh, I'm sure there, there's both that uh, partake of the tour. Right? Yeah, I think generally speaking, I don't see a difference. Um, I think most people are just pretty stoked. Um, I think a lot of important good work that's being done. Um, there's a, one group called Harlem Heritage Tours. They are very excellent. They are. Uh, by Harlem for the world Um, so they do good work but a lot of it just kind of misses these pieces because it's focused on Islam so you know they might talk about Malcolm X uh, maybe the nation but that's that's where it ends Um, and so I think I'm just kind of filling in the gaps and so New Yorkers are are excited about that Uh, for Harlemites that have gone so specifically people from the area one there's some people who are new so they feel a sense of obligation especially given the large structural changes in Harlem to kind of know this history and educate themselves um, so they can do a better job fighting for the neighborhood and and staying committed to the cultural heritage um, beyond kind of the stereotypes sensationalized. You know, we hear about the Apollo, but that's pretty much it, you know, and it's not fair to say that's the only thing that should be preserved. Um, And uh, certainly people from different Muslim communities have come on the tour, so they're excited um, to hear about it. And the tour is as interactive as it can be. So I, uh, my one friend, Kenny, you know, he is born and raised Harlemite. And so for me, it was such a blessing um, that by the end of the tour, people thought he was a co-tour guide, (laughs) you know, so he just, he just let us know, oh, oh, you're talking about that, um, you know, labor riot that had that uprising in 1934. Yeah, my grandmother was part of that. And it reminded me a lot of my experience of being at the new Smithsonian Museum on African and African American history, where, you know, people are having their moment to kind of take these objects into their own hands and and bring them to life um, for everyone around them. So, you know, at the museum, I saw someone say, oh, my gosh, that's our great, great uncle's box from when he was a banker down in the Atlanta area. You know, things like that um, come to life on my tour, too. And I'm very grateful um, that people have uh, become part of the tour kind of by coming along. Um, Also feel a sense of respect, I guess, for me, that they can add that information. Um, 
Um, and, you know, one time I was playing um, a particular um, kasida or, or poem um, from um, one of the um, Sufi communities in the in the neighborhood, uh, the Moradia group, and somebody came up to us and he was like, oh my gosh, that's beautiful, why are you playing this? And we explained and he was like, oh my gosh, my grandfather knew the head of this order and I'm so excited to hear it, you know, on the wow. street. So that's good. And, you know, a couple times there's this one particular guy who is a uh, artist, he's a hip hop artist and he kind of always interjects at the beginning of the tour and he's like what are you all doing for Harlem you know what are you doing here why are you here are you here to actually support my neighborhood or are you just here to watch he said and this to the to the, to tour the group board? to the group okay. right at the beginning and you know I think a lot of people look to me like oh my gosh what's going on and I'm like he's exactly right because first of all this is not some type of you know red bus tour where you get to point your camera just just really disrespectfully you know to the community this is us trying to appreciate you know like I said histories of past things have been lost and as much as I'm talking about the community I'm kind of leaving it up to you person on the tour to kind of take it upon yourself to decide what is my relationship going to be to the community so you know I kind of give that guy the mic Mm-hmm. you know, for as long as he kind of wants it. And I'm like, well, if anybody wants to buy a CD, like, let him know. Right. And I say, thanks so much, you know. And I say this tour is free. And right at the beginning of the tour, I always say, whatever money you want to give for this tour, you should spend it in the neighborhood. Um, I recommend a lot of really amazing restaurants. You know, if you're in Harlem, you, you better you better eat well. <laughs> um, and also, um, right now, through my friend that I mentioned, um, I'm asking people to donate specifically to this youth organization. So they they're one that basically, you know, from very, very young ages all the way through high school, they are there day in, day out um, with the young folks. So, what, What's the name of the organization? I cannot think of it off the top of my head. <laughs> well, no, you know, we can come back to it. Yeah, you know, yeah. yeah. No rush. Uh, yeah, yeah. I don't know if you had it. Right yeah, I didn't have it right on the tip of my tongue now. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So um, you mentioned something. The way you frame this, I find this really, uh, I find it encouraging. Mm-hmm. Uh, and you said that. Uh, Muslim history is New York's history. Mm-hmm. Uh, and and to take that logic even further, what it does, it says that that there is no history that is divorced from the, those who are around it. So uh, it's, it's the idea of, of, of black history being American history, uh, Irish history being American history, mm-hmm. you know, uh, Greek history being, you know. Mm-hmm. So whatever, whatever are the, 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 the components are, of society, that mm-hmm. they're not divorced or separated from one another. Mm-hmm. Is that is that intentional or is that just something that, is that just a, a part of your own worldview? Mm. Intentional to the tour or intentional? Is that, well, I should say, does that, well, yeah, is that is that specific to the tour? Mm-hmm. Where you're, you're trying to, is that like one of the objectives for people to see this as a part of, uh, especially for those who, who live uh, in New York or those who are, Harlemites to see this as part of the larger uh, history that they may have kind of divorced or, you know, kind of bifurcated in a way? Right. Yeah, I think that's one of the difficulties of talking about history, because I think a lot of folks take history to be some type of set of facts that we can look at, you know, under a microscope and we can see everything laid out very clearly. Um, And I think people like history because it sounds different from myth. 
Miss sounds kind of spooky, kind of all over the place. You know, it sounds fantastical. I think the first thing most Americans think of um, is either particular stories from their communities or Greek myths that they hear about from school. But really, history is a myth that we tell ourselves about ourselves. Um, and so what gets lost then is people don't see the interpretive part because certain mythologies about who we are and how we got here become dominant. And so it becomes a lot harder to actually go back and look at all the pieces that we've put together to weave this story. I think a great example, just to take it out of New York for a second, is the laws um, that, they, I, the last time I checked they were in court, um, that's, that uh, were brought up a little less than a decade ago in Arizona against um, Latinx or Chicano yes. studies. Mm-hmm. And and um, it's interesting because you, you should go back and look at the list of books that were banned as part of that project. And most of the, a lot of them have nothing to do specifically with Chicano studies and a lot to do with the study of people of color as part of American history. And so it starts to make you wonder, if you think of these books as building blocks, mm-hmm. how they're trying to block kind of a different way of telling our story. Um, and so while, of course, particular communities like the Chicano, Ch- Chicanx community has tried to say, you know, we want to preserve our own history, our own mythologies, our own figures, that's one piece. But the other piece is we can't lock that out of our own collective understanding as America, because that's where I think we get stuck um, with the controversy that happened recently with these Confederate monuments, as if that's the only story that we could tell about ourselves, that we can't take, t- tell a richer, more inclusive, um, and just history. Um, because, you know, for example, I, I just found out recently, and this, this is the issue, right, where we, we don't have access to these things and we have to go looking for them, that actually the Sonoma um, Wine Valley um, that kind of, I think in most people's line, is very, you know, affluent, like white space. A lot of that was created by um, East Asian immigrants who are contributors to the wine industry. Um, mm-hmm. And when we think of early New York, you know, we, we miss that part about enslaved folks coming from north, um, mostly northwest Africa before the large-scale imposition of the transatlantic slave trade. So, so th- those are the pieces I'm trying to reinsert. So when people think about, for example, the immigrant story... Um, you know, a lot of uh, politicians will say, we're a country of immigrants. And of course, right. you know, leaving out Native Americans, but also leave, leading, leaving out, you know, incarcerated and, uh, and people who are incarcerated on ships and, and stolen and taken here. Um, and so when you, when you bring in those pieces, what does labor history look like? You tell labor history in a really different way, um, yeah. because for me, you know, it's really important for me to talk about. For example, I'm from the New York area. There's this thing called the Delaware Canal that was built by throwing Irish bodies at it. I mean, there are literally Irish bodies, um, you know, um, pushed up against the walls that were basically buried there because they were expendable. And it's the same thing as we know with the trans uh, uh, transcontinental railroad with uh, Chinese yes. folk, mm-hmm. right? And so it's the same thing, you know, when we talk about enslaved folk and when we talk about the making of New York City, um, the subway system, same situation. Um, And so when we finally created an African burial ground monument in the Wall Street area, that was a recognition that when we talk about New York labor history, that's part of it. And just as I was saying, you know, talking about Irish folk um, being basically expendable to create this canal way and Irish Americans rallying around that labor history – 
Well, we also have to remember there was a whole race riot in New York precisely by Irish folk because they didn't want black folk to con- compete with their jobs after, after liberation, after the war. So, so it's, it's a way for us to tell better stories about ourselves, more inclusive stories. And inclusive sometimes can be a huggy-feely word, so I really want to insist on the part about justice. You know, It's about the justice here and now that we can do for each other, um, whether it comes to labor or education or, or any of these things. Do you think that history is often presented uh, in terms of wins and losses Mm. as opposed to looking at the uh, sociological um, makeup of of, of these different time periods? Uh, And I think that's one of the things that I I, I appreciate about anthropology Mm -hmm. uh, is that it takes these these factors, this this human interaction, into consideration in telling stories of the past. Yeah. but more importantly, um, do you feel that this is something that uh, that we're missing mm-hmm. uh, that we, when, we, when we talk about history? I mm-hmm. mean, because I'll put it like this. Uh, a thought just came, uh, a quote just came to mind. Um, it says that the history of labor is mm-hmm. the history of racism. Mm-hmm. Uh, and understanding what are the contributing factors mm-hmm. to the, the racism and mm-hmm. what are the contributing what was the the dynamics of labor mm-hmm. you know mm-hmm. uh, uh, production and and, and, and uh, uh, material and all of these different things mm-hmm. do you think that these are, are, are divorced in the way that we talk about history mm-hmm. yeah I think both both points that you made are true and, and difficult because they're in our textbooks it's not just coming from pundits right. um, so these um, framing of history according to the rise and fall of empires, um, and also the the framing of history according to um, kind of who controls um, the Marxist terms, you know, the means of production, who control, who has power over resources, and how those resources are distributed. Um, and both of those, I think, put us at a loss because, um, first of all, it, it traps us in this in this cycle. Um, where, you know, we need, so if you have two points A and B and we want kind of to have control, that just means B goes on top, A goes on the bottom and nothing changes. Um, So if we look at the writings, for example, um, that Franz Fanon did about the Algerian war, part of the point that he was trying to make, um, you can look in the book, A Dying Colonialism, it's not about Algerians simply gaining power. It's not, you know, I think a lot of times, and and this has happened, right? You know, um, that's the issue for a lot of folks post-colonialism, that it was just simply... Um, finding ourselves in positions of power, but reproducing the same oppressive practices. And so Franz Fanon was trying to argue what I see and I'm excited about, about what Algerians are doing. And he included both um, indigenous Algerians and also um, white European folk who are fighting on that cause, is they are trying to reimagine the sharing of resources and the sharing of power. Um, So part of what they were doing was saying women need to have positions of power. Mm -hmm. So we need to break break patriarchy at the same time that we break colonialism. Um, And so regardless of your own analysis of, you know, different Kurdish groups that are fighting right now, that's part of the philosophy of those groups that we need to intentionally put women in positions of power in order to break down patriarchy because what might end up happening is we get what we want politically 
and we retain um, oppression for 50% of the population. Sure. So Franz Fanon was describing putting women in positions of power and also thinking differently about the distribution of power so we don't have kind of one figurehead, you know, whether it's the French government or whether it's an indigenous leader that kind of takes away the resources of the population. You know, and that that's a conversation that Zimbabwe is having right now. You know, yeah. how are we supposed to think about um, our former leader just because he was someone who seemed to have brought a new form of collective power, but then kind of took it for himself. And so this is kind of the challenge. But, but more to your point about if we focus so much on the wins and losses of war, what do we lose? And I think we lose so much, especially um, we lose popular people's histories. There's so little, there's so little just about the majority of societies because we're mostly only looking into castles and fortresses um, and also the lettered class, you know, before we had mass literacy for a lot of folks. And I would even take, for example, a, a group of folks who are mostly only talked about in terms of war and spoils, the Vikings. So yes. I never thought I'd talk about the Vikings <laughs> here. But, you know, recently in the news, we saw um, a very famous piece of fabric where they thought it might have said Allah on it, um, embroidered into it. And people were fascinated by it. What do we make of it? Turns out that's probably false. But what we what we miss in that, um, if you go beyond uh, them saying that isn't really uh, the case, it was um, Vikings had this incredible um, kind of trade route, um, you know, along the uh, European coast, but all the way back into what we'd call, you know, Persia. Um, And so for Vikings who are from kind of these spaces closer to the Atlantic, they would collect uh, Persian coins and other things like that that had Allah on it or other type of things that we would call. Islamic it, so references to this these places, and so that's that's very interesting, um, and that's something that I think while that piece of fabric didn't say Allah, okay, but but. W- why don't we explore what does it mean for these groups of people to be in conversation with one another? How did they impact one another? How did culturally they affect one another? Those are much more interesting and I think illuminating conversations um, than trying to think, you know, who's going to win over who. And the, the same thing with American history. You know, so much of how America uh, America saw itself uh, in its early years was thinking about the Ottoman Empire, thinking about North African empires. You know, uh, Morocco was the first country to recognize America. And so sure. the, that's a much more interesting history. What are those relationships with these Muslim majority spaces versus, you know, just talking about warfare? I think it comes, uh, I think to a degree it comes to uh, marginalized identities uh, and wanting to see yourself as a part of, as a part of history. Mm-hmm. Uh, and uh, to the point that you brought up about the Chicanic studies. Yeah. Uh, that they, they were not necessarily about uh, in particular about them, mm-hmm. um, but painting a picture, I think uh, what, what it was showing was that there was a space for them to see themselves as a part of uh, of this country. Yeah, exactly. Uh, and the same, you know, to see, to think that they see a, a piece of fabric with the law on it. Yeah. It's almost a validation for those who feel that uh, Islam is not is not recognized or, mm-hmm. um, you know, it's something to see yourself on television. Yeah. Uh, that's, that's kind of, that's kind of the, a crude way of putting it. Yeah, yeah. But. Yeah. Um, Representation matters. Yeah, yeah. absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. Absolutely. And if you don't feel like it's, it's deliberate, then you'll find ways, you'll find ways to see yourself. Yeah. 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 So, uh, Radio Islam family, we are talking with Katie Merriman. Um, if you have a question or you'd like to make a comment, give us a call at 312-750-1178. 
That's 312-750-1178. We're going to take a quick break, but we will be right back. Traffic had stopped. Pedestrians were lying on sidewalks and curled up in doorways. There was no sign of violence, no wrecks, nothing like that. It was as if the people in New York had simply decided to stop whatever they were doing and pass out. Ice coated my stomach. The invasion has started. To find out what happens next, read Percy Jackson and the Olympians by Rick Reardon. Explore new worlds and check out more cool books at your local library. And visit read.gov. Brought to you by the Library of Congress and the Ad Council. A boy born in Joplin, Missouri, was fascinated by anything with wheels and a motor. The odds of him going on to fascinate millions with his talent, one in 260,000. The odds of him having 15 career NASCAR victories, one in 1.7 million. The odds of a child being diagnosed with autism, one in 88. I'm Jamie McMurray, and my niece has autism. Learn more at autismspeaks.org slash signs. Brought to you by Autism Speaks and the Ad Council. Radio Islam, the nation's first daily live call-in talk radio show produced by Muslims for the mainstream market. Radio Islam, on the air since 2004 because of your generosity. Radio Islam salutes its most valuable asset, you, our listener. From our producers to our interns, we appreciate your support. Thank you. Welcome back. Welcome back, Radio Islam family. This is your host, Tariq Kalamine. I'm going to mention them now. I always shout them out at the end of the show, but I'm going to shout them out right now. The impressive one, Ibrahim Bey, on the boards, social producer. Sometimes he'll jump in the conversation. Right now he's laying low. Oh, speaking of shout outs, before we jump back into our conversation with Katie Merriman, um, I said that I would give a shout out to Carla and Sean, our friends at the place that gives us sugar comas. Uh, What is it? Sugar Bliss. Bliss. Yes, Sugar Bliss. So a shout out if you guys hung around. uh, They said they'd be listening this evening. So a big shout out to you guys. Um, So, Katie, let's uh, jump back in. Mm -hmm. And um, as as a researcher, as as a scholar, as as a writer, Having the benefit to see some of the just just a window, if you will, uh, into some of the writings up, uh, some of your writings, your papers, I was really taken with one. Mm-hmm. Well, not just with one, but I'll just start with this one. Mm-hmm. Uh, and it was dealing with it was dealing with the way that Muhammad Ali mm-hmm. was uh, was seen and how he is painted often uh, in in one light. Mm-hmm. And that is simply as an athlete. Well, we'll go a step further. And we'll say that it is recognized that he's, he is looked at uh, as an activist. He was the most famous person in the world for, for years and years. Mm-hmm. Uh, but he is not looked at in terms of, um, of, the, of his religion is taken away from, yeah. from him. He's not looked at as an intellectual. Yeah. Right. Uh, and you made a comment. And I'm not going to f- fumble around. But you made a comment uh, basically saying that the... 
um, that the black athlete that the black athlete is, is diminished in terms of their intellectual contributions mm-hmm. um, when it comes to activism uh, and their their response to uh, social ills. Mm-hmm. Tell us a, a little bit more about that, uh, uh, and 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 just because it relates so much to just to, to where we are today with sure. Colin Kaepernick, sure. um, with um, and there have been another n- number of other athletes that have stood up and mm-hmm. uh, spoken out, but are their voices really being heard? Mm-hmm. <laughs> you know. Mm-hmm. Yeah, well, I I am no um, scholar of sports, so I'll definitely leave that to those <laughs> folk. But um, I will say I, I'm I'm happy to see that my work is relevant now, not because I'm happy with the status quo, yeah. but I'm happy that people are returning to these questions, um, especially after uh, the loss of Muhammad Ali uh, recently. And I think um, what it brings up is. Um, kind of the brilliance of sports. So part of, um, there's a great scholar, Ben uh, Carrington, who writes about race and sports. And uh, one of the things that he says is, sports are brilliant because it's one of the strongest shapers of national identity, but nobody thinks it is. Mm. Everybody thinks it's a site of pleasure. It's a site of excitement. It's a site of entertainment, but it's a key site of politics. Um, and that's no more evident than at the Olympics. You know, you can't help just all of those flags um, kind of proving your nation um, comes through. So even folks who, you know, might not be into sports wouldn't call themselves, you know, diehard nationalists. But, you know, there's still this kind of feeling of collective pride around the prowess of particular uh, nations when they show up at the Olympics. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I th- and so on top of kind of the national part, we think of ideas about, again, ideas about ourselves coming out in sports. And so um, for, for scholars who have written about sports where I use their work to write about Muhammad Ali, um, the, the sports arena was a way to say something about, quote unquote, our civilization, you know, about who we are and what we're capable of. And for a long time, um, sports were used in Europe and the United States as a way to show a form of civility of white folks that they were saying people uh, people of color, especially in colonized spaces, were incapable of. Um, and for a while, um, the kind of finesse um, that people were claiming they would see in these sports, they were claiming was only capable by white men. Mm-hmm. Um, and so many folks will point to this boxing match of Jack Johnson and say, you know, that was a moment of psychological um, discombobulation for white Americans. And that's where, you know, we get this phrase, the great white hope, you know, that people were like, this cannot be. And you can look up in the New York Times, the New York Times says something to the effect of, we can't let this black guy win, because if he wins, then black folks are going to want more than just a place in the boxing ring. Right. Um, and, and similarly, um, uh, ben, uh, William Roden, who wrote this book called 40, $40 Million Slaves, he writes about the fact that constantly when you see black excellence in the sports ring, um, before we get to the mid-20th century, they were constantly pushed out. So there's this one guy named Isaac Murphy who is a great jockey. Um, he gets pushed out of um, horse racing because that was seen as improper for him to be doing so well. I mean, he had his own like white chauffeur. Um, and he made incredible amounts of money in the 19th century, so they, they eventually bought uh, 
blocked African Americans. The other element of it wow. is black control of money and resources. So sports is also a way to basically take, and I think this is why Rodin made this choice of using this word slave. I mean, very powerful, uh, kind of, you know, troublesome to use this word, but he is talking about kind of mass um, theft of resources and money um, from black folk. And what he's trying to argue is historically from black communities. So a lot of us think of Jackie Robinson and the integration of uh, baseball as a great thing, as it was, I mean, to be able to say segregation is wrong. But part of the point that um, Rodin is trying to make is, but at the expense of what? And what it did was it took apart uh, black leagues that were black owned. um, And one of the kind of forebears of these black baseball leagues um, kind of had a psychological breakdown and died very young. Um, And we can only speculate, but I'd imagine all of that money and resources in the community being flushed away and taken back by um, white control of of athletes and sports, I think is a piece of that. And that's why, um, just to shed some light on something that most folks uh, don't know about Muhammad Ali is he actually started his own um, sports company called Main Bout Inc. Um, And it was started in December of 1966. Um, And this was after kind of he he was falling out of favor, but he wanted to um, take take the reins, if you will, because he finished his contract with the I think almost exclusively, if not exclusively, white-owned group down in Louisville, where yes. he's originally from. Mm-hmm. So he took it over, and it was majority black-owned by um, himself, uh, Herbert Muhammad, who was his manager, um, John Ali, who was the uh, national secretary of the Nation of Islam, and also Jim Brown, who was a popular NFL player. Um, and there, there were two um, white, white guys who were also part of it as well. And so he wanted to have a black-owned, black-controlled business um, to push back against the sports world to say that you can't just kind of take everything from black folks, their bodies, I mean, their well-being, um, and also control over this. Um, so we're, I'm going to take it back. So he ended up starting this company. But unfortunately, because of all the pushback of Vietnam and things like that, he lost seven years. He lost seven years, and the company um, kind of fell apart. But um, it doesn't mean that his kind of retaking of his body from the sports world wasn't effective, because you know when he went to the Olympics, part of it was again reinscribing the nationalist narrative. You know, he's our boy. You know, he represents America. Right. And then later on, as he starts protesting, uh, Thurgood Marshall calls him an ugly American. Right. And I think it's really important to focus on that word American. You know. He he wasn't saying an ugly man, you know, right. an ugly, an ugly American. Um, and so Muhammad Ali kind of took his body back through practices in the Nation of Islam. So he stopped eating pork. He had his own Muslim chef uh, that, that would follow him around. Um, he also wouldn't drink. He refused any types of endorsements um, for uh, cigarette or alcohol uh, companies and probably in the millions of dollars nowadays. Yeah. Um, and he also, I really like this, um, Bell Hooks talks about um, health as a white luxury. And so part of Muhammad Ali's insistence on being healthy was saying that I deserve to be healthy. Black folk deserve to be healthy. It's not right for you to do this to us, whether as athletes or whether as people on the street, which obviously we can appreciate nowadays with 
bad foods and right. bad bad access to foods. Um, and then once he started getting attacked, you see um, the political violence of trying to take his body back by literally killing him. And so we have that very famous image um, on the cover of Esquire in 1968, um, where they take an image of St. Sebastian, which was made very famous in the Renaissance, and they redo it on Muhammad Ali's body. And so just recently, um, I don't know, I can't remember which magazine, um, but they recreated that onto the body of Colin Kaepernick. So recreating that image of deciding to be a martyr, to, to, to honor your body um, in the way that I think both of them have as black athletes, but then deciding that you can offer it to the community for the greater good. And the final thing I'll say is um, I really like when Muhammad Ali um, pushes back at one point and he says, I belong to the world. I'll always have a home in Pakistan, Algeria, and Ethiopia. And part of the way he was turning how his body was seen was turning it and saying, my body and its blackness doesn't need to be defined by white supremacy in America. That's part of him saying, I'm pretty, I'm beautiful, <laughs> I'm handsome. Right. You know, a lot of people think he was just joking, but that was a very political statement. This was far before, yes. you know, Black is Beautiful that he was doing this stuff. And I think, again, because um, sports and uh, athleticism is not seen as a political arena, I think a lot of people didn't read it that way. But that was a very political thing to say. And I think now that we're, you know, 50 years later, it's harder to see that because all these things have happened. Right. You know, and we have we have Beyonce and we have all these incredible and Serena Williams who are just these incredible figures but I think it's hard for me at least you know being someone who's only in her early 30s to appreciate what that sounded like you know in 1964. Yeah that was tremendous pushback um, you know against uh, a, a hidden a subtext uh, yeah. because uh, at one point it was it was out in your face mm -hmm. you know that you are less than you are ugly mm -hmm. uh, but this conversation is, is one that it, it plays out in the actions of, uh, not just the actions, it plays out in the bottom line of corporations. Mm -hmm. um, you know, whether it be, you know, we're looking at body image, we're looking at uh, hair, mm -hmm. uh, eyes, um, and, and globally. Mm -hmm. uh, and I'll say two words, Sammy Sosa. Mm -hmm. If you have seen Sammy Sosa now, mm -hmm. today, compared to when he was playing for the Chicago uh, Cubs, mm -hmm. uh, he was my complexion, mm -hmm. and he is now. He's about your complexion now, mm -hmm. and 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 that is a, a phenomenon that is not. Um, it's not exclusive to. Uh, well, I think what is he? What is he from Brazil or from? Where is he from? I think he's from Dominican, Dominican Republic. Yeah. Okay. I think so, yeah. yeah, but it's, it's not a phenomenon exclusive to to Dominican Republic. But this is right. something that is. This is a part of the the global uh, mindset. Of, of many people of color, mm -hmm. uh, where they see lighter skin, they, mm -hmm. they well, they look at their darker skin as mm -hmm. being uh, negative and you know and and, and, and you know and, uh, and ugly, mm -hmm. you know. So mm -hmm. that is, um, yeah. So what he did was uh, what Muhammad Ali did was 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 really transformational. Yeah. Um, how do you see his legacy playing out today, or do you see it? Well, let me ask this also, because you mentioned the control of, of black bodies. As yeah. a matter of fact, that's something that uh, Ta-Nehisi Coates, he, he yep. speaks about that uh, at length, you know, in, 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 his, uh, in his book. Um, so we could, we could really venture off into mass incarceration. Mm -hmm. um, mm -hmm. But I want to ask, uh, are you, so are you, do you follow uh, boxing? No, I don't. <laughs> okay, so you know who I'm, I'm thinking about today? I'm thinking about Floyd Mayweather, Mayweather Jr. Okay. Now, a lot of people don't, 
some people don't care for him. They think he's he's brash and they look at personal defects and everything else. But one of the biggest things that I've seen is that he has taken back. He puts his body on the line mm-hmm. and he fights, but he is making the lion's share of the money because he okay. promotes his own uh, fights and, you know, he calls himself Money Mayweather. Yeah. Um, and, and I think to a degree, to what you mentioned yeah. about uh, Ali and setting up his own company up, yeah. is that that was kind of the model of if you're going to take the risk, then you should get the reward. Yeah. Um, so saying that, how do you see or do you see Muhammad Ali's legacy uh, materializing? How do you see it in today's uh, society? Yeah. Um, specifically to athletes, I think that um, there's a shadow there. I don't know. There's, I, it, It's such a potent image, I think, in folks' minds, especially with his recent death, that it doesn't need to be referenced. It's already there. I think that's part of the impetus of that picture of Colin Kaepernick with those arrows. People see it even without having to mention you know, what they're talking about when they, they reuse that image. Um, I also think um, what we're seeing over again, and some people are remembering, is that, again, because we are post-collective um, national protests against Vietnam, we kind of take it for granted for Muhammad Ali to do that. We're like, oh, yeah, people started waking up. He was doing it years before everyone else. And so I think a lot of people are also making these parallels where they're saying, okay, right now they're completely being disowned. But I bet you, you know, 15 years from now, everyone's going to be like, oh, Colin Kaepernick, what a great guy, what a leader for our country. And it was a similar thing of what they did to Ali um, by the 19, was it 1996 yeah. Olympics in Atlanta where he was the one kind of carrying the torch. And by that point, they had totally kind of circumscribed um, what was supposed to be a radical political act and made it completely American. Of course, that's what we wanted. Of course, that was the direction America's going. And I think um, the folks, uh, men and women, who are doing these types of protests are the ones kind of bearing that burden where they are looking far into the future, but they're willing to take that sacrifice. And I, and I hope um, with that inspiration uh, from Ali. So, um, and in terms of the money, I think also part of the point that many athletes I see what they're doing is Ali was also someone who said, it's not just a matter that myself as a black man is getting money, but that money needs to go back into the black community. So one, of course he was, um, for lack of a better word, tithing into the nation of Islam. So his money was pouring back there for their uh, economic, uh, political, and social projects. Um, Also, um, in the late 60s, I believe, he donated $10,000 to the United Negro College Fund. um, And that was the largest ever single donation they had ever received. Um, And so I also see with a lot of um, basketball players and others, they're insistent on putting that money back into black communities um, and, and seeing that movie that that money go back to where it belongs. I think one of the last things which kind of caught a lot of energy and kind of disappeared was some of the um, pushback of college athletes, uh, especially majority black teams, against playing um, during uh, elements of police brutality um, and also the way that black students are being treated on campuses. Uh, that is a way without demanding payment, which I believe they should get, um, for them to kind of push back and say, we recognize the kind of power that we have. And actually at UNC, the only reason that we got a large um, respectfully appropriate African-American center, it's called the Stone Center at the University of North Carolina, 
is because the football team marched in the streets and held up the demands of the protesters who said, oh, you can't give us a room, because that's what the university wanted. They just wanted to give them a room and right. you know, keep them quiet. But it, w- it, was, it was the athletes that led that. And so when I saw all of those majority black football teams pushing back, that was an echo um, of Ali, I feel like, that I saw. Mm. Yeah. Well, let me ask you this. Um, this might be our last question. Okay, <laughs> I'm no looking problem. At the, I'm looking at the clock. But oh, yeah. Oh, and actually, can I just say, sure. for those who are interested, um, the, the um, organization that I have people donate to on the tour is called the Brotherhood Sister Soul. Okay, so great. you can look them up, brotherhood-sistersoul.org. They're amazing. Great, yeah. great. Thank you for yeah. coming back to that. Yeah. Um, so within your within your research, which is which is pre- pretty vast, uh, <laughs> but you also you also write on a figure that is uh, v- very near and dear to my my own heart mm-hmm. um, as a as a spiritual leader. Mm-hmm. Uh, that as far as scholarly works, uh, I would say are are, are lacking. Yeah. So I was I was very uh, interested to see um, uh, that that was one of the one of the uh, the focuses that, that that you know that you delved into. So what what is the the relevance mm-hmm. in in from your reading and from uh, your research and the different communities and taking outside of the Muslim community, but to the to the world stage mm-hmm. of the um, of the thinking uh, and the uh, intellectual contributions of uh, Imam Muhammad Muhammad. Great. So, uh, first of all, I just want to say um, Dr. Jamila Kareem, who's based, she's an independent scholar, but based in Atlanta. She's doing very exciting uh, newer work on the Worthy Muhammad communities, not specifically on Worthy Muhammad. Mm-hmm. Um, my interest in Worthy Muhammad's work was um, hit one of these collected lecture books called uh, Problems That Face Man Today. Mm-hmm. Um, and they were collected mostly from some talks that he gave in Harlem. What I found so fascinating about Worthy Muhammad is I think a lot of people don't focus on him because I spoke about I'll, I'll give I'll give it to you through a story. I spoke about him in London at this large conference um, on uh, Muslim public intellectuals of the 20th century, and I was one of two women there. Um, and one person asked me, he said, oh, that's great what you're saying about what Worthy Muhammad thought and all these amazing ideas about Islam, but don't you think it was a failure? You know, you don't see this kind of, no, I don't see that name, people don't identify. And I thought, well, that's very interesting because I, I don't think you've asked anybody in the community. <laughs> but more importantly, I think when people, when leaders reject kind of this prophethood of, of making themselves like, the singular leader or the singular focus of the community, um, people think that they failed. Um, when really, actually, from what I gather of Warthi Muhammad's work, he wanted to give everyone the opportunity to be a leader at a local level. And so it went from a very hierarchical structure for him wanting to invest in and have people believe in themselves that they could be the leaders that their communities needed. And so in a way, that horizontal structure, which in my work I would call feminist, not that he would use that word, but this idea that we don't need to climb over one another to be on top. We are all better when we all uplift each other. I think that's the legacy of Worthy Muhammad, and that's why I find him very interesting. And and on the flip side, I think that's why he hasn't gotten enough light shined on his work. You know, it's interesting that you say that because 
that goes directly to stopping every movement that has had any type of momentum mm -hmm. uh, because all hope uh, is invested in the fate of one individual. Right. Um, I was just listening to a uh, to a program on uh, Harold Washington, mm -hmm. Chicago's first, you know, black mayor. Yeah. And they talked about after his death is that there had been no planning. There was no organizational mm. structure uh, that was ready to move forward, right. you know, afterward. So that right there, this horizontal kind of leader, giving leadership to everyone, yeah. which I think is, which I can say from my own experience, I think that's right on the, uh, right on the money. Cool. Yeah, that's, yeah. that's awesome. Great. Um, I thank you so much for being here. Great. Uh, <clears throat> and thank you. We, uh, when, how, how often do you the t uh, do the tours? So I do the tours when it's warm outside. Uh, global warming has made that a little weird because people have written me in November and they're like, hey, it's 70 degrees. <laughs> right. But most of the time it's given uh, usually between late March to about uh, early October, um, probably about four or five times a year. Um, I might be moving back to New York. So if I am back there, uh, you can definitely see it more often. And in late spring 2018, I will be opening not just a Harlem tour, but a Wall Street area tour where we'll talk about Turkish Dutch, Dutch merch. Um, the first mosque, one of the first mosques in New York City in 1910 by the Young Turks um, wow. and other exciting stories from early New York. Okay, awesome. Cool. Katie, thank you so very much. So. Um, and, and I hope that the next time you're in Chicago that you will drop by. Uh, of course. <laughs> <laughs> uh, and we definitely wish you uh, all, all the best and pray for your continued success. Um, folks, all right, Radio Salon family, we've been talking with Katie Merriman. Uh, she is a, um, a researcher. She's a scholar. Uh, she's a, and a tour guide, all right? <laughs> so she does everything, right? Um, and uh, so we look forward to talking with you guys tomorrow. Uh, our engineer tonight has been Ramon. Thank you so much over at WCEV. Uh, make sure we come through nice and clear. Uh, once again, our engineer in-house, the impressive one, Ibrahim Bey. I'm your host and producer, Tariq el -Amin. Our executive producer is Abdul Malik Mujahid. Uh, the thoughts, any words and views that have been expressed by the host and or guest are theirs and not to be taken as the views of sound vision. It's been a good, it's been a good hour. And, and now we're out of here. So I'm going to leave you as I greeted you all. Assalamu alaikum. May the peace that only God can give be upon you.